welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a comedic uh, genius, Tim Heidecker from Tom Goes to the Mayor, from Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job, from Office Hours, from On Cinema, from from tons of stuff. Ton, tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff. This is a real fun one. Get ready. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned at a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. You can also rate it and subscribe to it on iTunes. And thank you to everyone that does leave a rating for this thing. It's very much appreciated. You can also support the podcast by heading over to turnedatapunk.com and checking out our merch store over there. There are some t-shirts that I designed and they are up there. And thank you to everyone who has headed over and ordered one. And I'm apologizing again for some of the issues with the shipping because that is unfortunately the reality of the the world right now with getting things to certain places, it's it's prohibitive right now and stuff like that. And don't worry, there's going to be a Canadian store coming at some point. But thank you to everyone who was headed over to turnoutapunk.com and ordered a shirt. You can also uh, support this podcast by going over to patreon.com slash turnoutapunk and checking out some of the stuff that happens on that thing. And thank you to everyone that has headed over there and, and subscribed and you know, contributes to this thing through that. There is footnotes with Chris O'Toole and myself. There's video versions of some of these episodes. There's uh, lost episodes. There's live episodes. There's all sorts of stuff. So anyway, anyway, check that out over there at patreon.com. And speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the support of fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just, just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the costs of doing this thing. And Go figure. There are costs with doing a podcast, a free podcast, but they help me cover them. And for that, I am ever grateful. Thank you very much to them for doing that. All right. On to the show. Tim Heidecker is here. And as you heard off the top, he is a comedic genius. If you are unfamiliar with him, if you are, you maybe know him from, you know, Tom Goes to the Mayor or Tim and Eric and the amazing run that they had on their TV series and all the spinoff stuff they did from that or on cinema with Greg Turkington and all the amazing stuff that's kind of come out of that whole universe or, or this office hours thing he does on YouTube and the hours of content that has come out of that, including a recent 12 hour live stream, which is incredible on so many levels. Now in the episode, he actually talks about the fact that, he views what they were doing in the early years more as art than necessarily comedy. I don't mean to spoil that, but you really do see that kind of play out on this 12 hour live stream, how the line, the line between comedy and art is, is blurred and it just, you know, almost ceases to exist at a certain point or maybe that's the point. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on because you're going to hear me ramble on in a second with Tim. Check out, uh, Hyde network. TV. If you want to check out more of the on cinema universe with Greg Turkington or check out youtube.com slash Tim Heidecker, which is Tim's YouTube channel for all of the incredible 
content that he puts out over on that thing as well. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Tim Heidecker on Turned Out a Punk. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Nice to see you and hear you and talk to you. Well, I'm a big fan. And actually, you know, it's rare that I get to impress my kids with someone coming on the show. But my eldest and I were watching that new Disney kind of science fiction anthology series. Yeah. Yeah, Just beyond. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, that guy's coming on my podcast. And he was he was impressed by that. So (laughs) I thought you were going to go the other way, because the other day I was doing a uh, a a concert uh, festival and uh, I play music as well. And I was playing with Wiseblood, Natalie Maring, who's a very super talented young singer. And we were we made an album together last year and uh we were performing and somebody a friend of mine was there and they uh saw this this younger teenager or a teenager and uh he he was like do you know that was tim for that was tim from tim and eric and he goes oh i was wondering who natalie if i wonder i was wondering why natalie was singing with her her dad (laughs) and then he said i used to watch tim and eric when i was a kid and i was like oh man that made me feel feel old yeah, no, I got a I got a job at a cannabis marketing company and the Stooges came up in conversation and I had to explain who the Stooges were. And that's when I realized, like, I think I've aged out of anything appro- appropriating cool culture or approximately <laughs> right, cool culture. Right, at this point. Right. Um, but I, we got to talk about uh, a lot of different things, but I want to start so this much. off the way they start, all start off. Yeah. Which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I mean, I would have to think it was something very lame, like, uh, you know, the local rock station playing the Ramones or playing, um, you know, uh, what's a, the, 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 the version of the Ramones that were out of, uh, not, this, <laughs> I'm blanking. I, my memory is just filled with <laughs> things I don't need to know about these days. Um, yeah, who's the big punk band from England from you know the seventies? That uh, Sex Pistols. Should I stay or should I clash. go? The Clash. The, the Sorry, clash. So, I just needed to hear them tune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. That, to be honest, I wasn't. You know, no one's cool when they're ten. Mm-hmm. So it was just what I was exposed to. It would have been that. Certainly, the Ramones uh, were kind of ubiquitous and and everywhere in a lot of ways. I mean, and also like pro like. Uh, stuff that just grew out of punk that became pop. Like I know my dad was a big fan of Billy Idol, mm-hmm. which was like not punk, but certainly grew out of punk probably. Right. Oh, absolutely. Like, Generation X. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually weird. They're an interesting band because like Generation X breaks up half the band becomes Billy Idol and obviously influences that world. The yeah. other half becomes this band empire that puts mm. out one single and one LP and kind of fades into obscurity in England but those singles and LP wind up in DC in the hands of Ian Mackay. And that's the blueprint for all that discord oh, Fugazi stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's very strange. That's yeah, very it's, cool. It's kind of cool. How, like, you know, where it all goes and stuff, but you grew up in Allentown, right? Yeah. And there was a huge, I would say punk, but also hardcore, uh, straight edge, hardcore, and just like hardcore music scene in Allentown in that part of the country um that i did not like i'll be honest with you <laughs> just, just just i was it, it was my scene it was weird be, for me it was weird because it was my scene but i didn't like it you know i was like i just found the music i was kind of a 
I was a big comedy fan, but I was also like a Beatles sixties classic rock guy. Yeah. Uh, but my friends, but I was also like drinking beers and trying to smoke weed and doing drugs and stuff, you know, and all those kids were into, uh, well, people were into a lot of stuff. Uh, but there was a couple of kids, especially the kids where you'd get your, your drugs from, (laughs) it's like really deeply into the hardcore stuff. Ironically, like some of it was the straight edge hardcore that he was into, but was also like dealing weed. So I don't know what was going on there. There's a crossover. Yeah. But there was a, my cousin in particular was really into that scene and, and a minor threat and uh, a bunch of bands I'll never remember the names of, but they were, you know, ubiquitous in the car driving to go get beer. There were just that. And for me, I feel like I just, um, it was very loud and I couldn't understand what they were saying. And it, I couldn't uh, connect with it, you know, and it kind of yeah. exhausted me to hear, it exhausted my brain. Uh, so it, w- it wasn't for me that particular and you know these were all like the the cassettes going through very bad uh you know car speakers and stuff so maybe maybe it deserves a re-listen but well and also by that point in the 90s it was you know pretty pretty codified and like hardcore was a very distinct thing that was separate from the fact that like at one point this thing was minor threat and the b-52s you know like right and it, it by the time it gets distilled down especially like it gets way worse post green day obviously but like it becomes this very defined thing and yeah like aesthetically you don't have but like you know it's it's such a broad thing there's our bands that sound just like the beatles kind of coming out of punk rock too right like yeah i mean and all that stuff sure and i liked i mean it's embarrassing but i we were that group had was like were early green day fans like mm-hmm. they had that like kerplunk record and maybe something before that maybe there was a record before that that was 39 like, smooth happy yeah. hours or whatever yeah and i was like that i could get into because i felt like there was a lot of clever melody going on with a lot you know with them there's a the pop punk thing i didn't know what it was but i i could recognize that there was like there was that beatles sort of you know pop uh melody sensibility happening in a lot of that stuff yeah i think there's also like you know especially with the 60s stuff like such a record collector kind of tradition that kind of comes out of where like you know and and especially in the 90s anything that wasn't mainstream we all were kind of bonded Mm -hmm. together by the fact that we just didn't want to be into i guess what was it billy ray cyrus at the same time as nirvana yeah it could have been that or it could have you know uh, mariah carey or whatever was what whatever was pop music at that time celine dion you know yeah anything that wasn't that i was into so what were some of the first places you were kind of picking up records and stuff oh well in, in allentown it would have been uh a couple of places that i don't know if they exist anymore tunes um i wasn't i wasn't a big record collector my dad had a big fairly decent sized collection from his um from his college days and into the 70s and 80s but uh, yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't a record collector. I, I bought um, CDs, you know, they were good. Mm-hmm. They were good enough. So what were some of the first uh, bands you were into other than the Beatles and things like that? Were there any like local bands that you were kind of? Uh, God, they're not really. I, I, <laughs> I don't think we didn't really have any good bands that I would have been into. I mean, that I was, I had my, my bands. I had my, me and, uh, there, my friend, I guess the one band that was around this band, Weston. Yeah, great band. 
Yeah, absolutely. They were kind of the king kings of the uh, cool kids. They were they felt like they were. I don't know how popular they ever got. Uh, they got pretty, they're pretty influential now, like especially. Really? Like, yeah. Like it's weird how how big uh, one of the guys went on and had a huge solo career. Well, Dave Weston was uh, he, he was like the obviously it was his band. But if I close my eyes, I picture like Stephen Malcolmus. That's who I picture like from yeah. pavement. You know, yeah. if it was he was that kind of guy he was tall, lanky, kind of nerdy, but cool as hell. And uh, I, I have this memory of going to see them. And I think I might have just been in college, but I was either a freshman in college or a senior in high school around then. And they were playing fairly bigger, little, fairly big kind of halls around the area. And I brought my, uh, I brought, I was taking, I guess I was in college because I was taking like a photography class. So I had my camera and uh, he saw me, he goes, and he was kind of smart. He was kind of like a jack. He was kind of like a, you know, an ass, like a yeah. jerk, you know, like, but in a funny way. Uh, and he's a, uh, he saw me, he goes, who are you, Annie Leibowitz? You know, and I just thought that was so, I knew who that was. And I was like a cool reference. And it was also a dig at me for having a camera. But um, yeah. And then out of that band, uh, there was another band called Digger. Yep. Well, Digger was one of the, the, Lee, the Phil Nelson. It's so funny to be talking about him. He was probably my closest friend in high school. Oh, wow. And yeah, he died uh, right out of right out of high school, about like half, I guess, 96 or something like that. So it would oh. have been a couple years after high school. He I went to Temple University uh, to the big city and he stayed and didn't go to college or was taking college classes and was really all into Digger because they went in and like really just uh, went for it. And did and I think they had toured a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he overdosed. He was, you know, he lived on the, he lived on the edge. There's a lot of these guys do. He was uh, messing around with the the wrong stuff. And it was awful, still awful because he was just really unbelievably talented uh, and funny and uh, just a great presence. Just a great, you know, really one of the few um, African-American men in that scene at all i mean and probably in the country you know, but especially in allentown and uh so he but he grew up he was adopted and he had uh you know he always had he was always sort of getting in trouble you know he's just one of those kids that was always getting in trouble and uh yeah anyways that band was also this guy matt gregoric who i think they re re uh launched that group a few years ago maybe i, I think they've done a reunion yeah they, yeah they they did definitely tour because they were a band that was huge in my life they came up and played wow. toronto and stayed at my friend's house and we hung out with them and that's and so cool yeah definitely and i want my hat back is still a jam i still will put that on a mixtape if i make one i i mean i went to high school with all those guys uh the drummer mike was yeah these i was in a band with them in the in high school in fact that was sort of more in the alt rock, uh, alt, you know, sixties sort of my stuff. Like the, it was kind of my band or at least I was writing the songs. And then, uh, they were, they also just liked punk and, and they had, they started digger after I 
I don't know if I was, if I left or if I guess, I guess I went to college or whatever, but they were starting bigger around then. So I, I've stayed in touch with them for, for a little while, but they were, we were all very tight in high school. There was also Plow United too. I think that's like another band that I always associate with them. Weston. I don't, that does not ring a bell. Okay. They were uh, definitely, and Weston actually played a show that comes up on this podcast a lot. The AFI riot when AFI played Toronto and uh, there was a riot with all security guards. It was Weston, Lifetime, AFI and Good Riddance. Wow. And Trigger Happy. And it's definitely a show that kind of comes up time and time again with various. What people. year would that have been? 97. Okay. It was like at that moment where that stuff started really popping off. And like you said, yeah. like Weston, you know, put out a bunch of records, some of them obviously becoming hugely influential. And, you know, like it was kind of pre where you could kind of, I guess, coordinate a fan base like that into like something bigger, you know, like it's interesting how yeah. like, like the way you kind of do comedy now where you've built your own world where you don't even need networks or anything like that. You've got your own thing and, and bands yeah. are kind of doing that too. But it, at that time it was kind of, yeah. I mean, it was just going out and playing shows and bringing your records with you, right? Selling yeah. them on, at the, the, and maybe giving them or selling, I don't know. Would you go to a local record shop with 10 records and give them and sell them to them for wholesale or something? Put them on consignment. Yeah. yeah put them on consignment. <laughs> Most of the time they'd only take them on consignment. And then you're, yeah. you're at the mercy of them trying to get paid six months but later. But that, I mean, that we were doing that in high school. We were doing making our own four track demos, making the covers ourselves at Kinko's. We weren't really doing punk, but we were doing that kind of DIY, making our own stuff from soup to nuts. Because mostly we just wanted the feeling of being in, of having a record and having a, you know, having a tape. It was never a record for us, but, you know, and designing it and putting all sorts of jokes and then making 20 of them and giving them to our friends, you know. <laughs> But it's this idea of like kind of creating your own culture, you know, that I yeah. think you, you, and you, I saw you do an interview where you're talking about um, making films and the idea that anyone can do this. And the fact that you're kind of like, you, I think you referenced El Mariachi and the idea of like trying to that, to show people that like, yeah, if you have the vision, you can make it happen. Yeah. The, it's, it's, it gets easier and easier in a way with all the technology. I mean, mm -hmm. the iPhones and, and iMovies and, and, that you know the consumer level stuff is so good uh i couldn't imagine being uh in in high school now with like ideas popping off and energy with all this equipment around to make stuff uh we didn't have anything like that we were in camera editing on a vhs tape thing you know it was very rudimentary but yeah i think we've always had this i mean and i should say eric I can't really speak for him, but I know that he came, he came from a very deep hardcore punk tradition uh, in Philly and playing in bands that you probably know way more than I do. Um, but it was it, go, going, getting to meet him and, and living together during college when he was operating like, making his own merch, making his own, his own stickers, uh, you know, t-shirts, um, not just for him, but for other bands, like really an entrepreneurial kind of attitude about like finding this little niche culture, this kind of outsider, uh, you know, alternative lifestyle and mar marketing it, you know, like finding a way to, 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 to like have a bit little side side hustle, 
going. And that, that, you know, became sort of how we handled our own stuff. When we started making, making comedy, it was like, let's take it out on our own. Let's go show it at rock. You know, we would show our, our early movies before bands. Um, some of them punk bands, you know, we played in front of the shins. That was kind of the biggest one. I don't know how we got that, but the shins weren't big at the time, but they had just come out with their first album and it was getting good reviews. And we showed some movies before their, their set at Maxwell's in Hoboken. Oh, wow. And uh, it was a big deal, but it also was coming from a place. It was a big deal to us. I mean, didn't necessarily lead to anything, but it was like, we're not going to join a comedy troupe. We're not going to go, I don't know, you know, uh, join. We're not going to like Brian. I'm sure, you know, Brian Posehn. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. When when Bob Odenkirk first discovered us, um, which which happened because we just like in that same punk spirit, just sent him our stuff, um, found his address, sent him sent him our stuff, and included um, I had a DVD in there. I also had these really obnoxious uh, publicity stills of us that were very you know you might say Tim and Eric now, but very ridiculous and. Um, and an invoice for the shipping and the DVD <laughs> and the photos, right? Yeah. And we just had us, we just uh, had a suspicion that Bob would think that was funny, and like it was just kind of our our whole ethos at the time was like be presenting ourselves as these like gross business kind of you know entrepreneurial guys. But anyway, so that's how Bob found us, and we started talking to Bob and. And getting all sorts of advice and thinking about what how we were going to break in and and Bob told us he was like I was talking about you guys to uh, to Brian Posehn and Brian was like why don't these guys get a job in a writer's room you know and Bob was like that's the last thing they they should do they should stay the hell out of they are ra- you know they have been raised by wolves they don't know this awful business we're in they don't know the rules like let's never teach them the rules because as soon as you learn the rules you start making shitty things you know so uh that's what we've been able to kind of do which we were able to do for a long time is just kind of stay in our own little uh our own little bubble you you mentioned that house that eric had that you lived in together back in college you guys did shows there right is that where that because there's a 12 ton system show from the basement i think yeah, it was not a basement. It was a. Uh, it was like the second floor, actually. Okay. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a row home. Uh, you know, a Philly, Philadelphia, South Philly row home, seven hundred nine South Sixth Street. It's not there anymore. Recently, went back there, and it was. It had been. I think there was a gas leak, and it exploded or something. It was sort of. Oh wow. We need to put a plaque up there, but yeah, it was a total shit hole that i lived in with eric and and usually a kind of floating third roommate because it had that middle room that didn't have a window you know like one of those like (laughs) railroad apartments that just uh god you know you couldn't get you couldn't pay somebody to live in that room but you needed somebody to pay you to live there it's the grow up room that's where you're supposed to have the grow up yeah (laughs) yeah well we i guess we uh, eric would have occasionally would have shows there uh, usually to pay the rent or pay the, the gas bills, you know, one of those kind of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah so that was and you know the cops would come it was the it was about as cliche as you could imagine but eric had these um he was a real gearhead too and he had these enormous i don't know what there would be called just like like stacks you know like marshall stack style uh amps that were just way too much power for a, a living room in south philly you know what i mean just that would have been good for the spectrum um but uh and we did a we had a joke band there called the tim heidecker masterpiece mm-hmm. that was kind of a you know spinal tap adjacent kind of spoof uh band that we would that that eric and i and this guy john ziemba would would uh do from time to time as a, as a joke play with the punk bands as a as a comic relief act well uh i think the one time i've got to play a show with you you guys did uh a band for fuck yeah fest in oh Puss with bang gang yeah yeah and fucked mm-hmm. up played i think just before you guys yeah and it was one of the most insane performances i've ever seen <laughs> in my life it was amazing yeah yeah we well that was born out of the awesome show but we had this yeah sketch that was yeah like a 70s i had actually seen this the influence of that was the doors but it was it was after the doors after jim morrison died um the doors soldiered on for some reason for a couple albums and uh they there's this performance of them uh on german television from like 1973 or something (laughs) and it's so good it's so all it's so ugh, it's so like m- mediocre you know because poor uh what's his name robbie krieger has to take over lead vocals and it's like you know it's just not not that i'm a big doors fan but you know it was at least there's at least there was something interesting happening with jim morrison yeah those are big shoes to fill it's like yeah to fill like it's just, and the stooges or something yeah it, it was it, but the look of that was so good and the way it was shot we like we did this uh this this bit on the show and then it was so fun to do that bit that we're like we got to do this live and um yeah we, my i love i mean i'm i'm a little less uh i guess you could say i'm a little less punk but i'm a little less sort of uh, antagonistic about live performance now but at the time it was like <laughs> fuck this festival my attitude our added my attitude i guess was just like fuck this festival i don't know why i think because it was just called fucked up or you know it was just it had this sort of pretentious uh you know we're too cool for school kind of attitude let's go up there and play boogie woogie blues rock yeah. for as long as we can you know it's sort of that andy kaufman thing of just being obnoxious and intolerable for for our own amusement that's the thing about comedy where it's it's amazing where it has that moment where it stops being funny and then comes back around and yes. it's hilarious again yeah, that's a tricky thing to find. I don't, I, I maybe we found it that night. I don't really remember. I remember having fun, but I was also not really used to play. I mean, I mean, you play a lot of shows. There, you know, that thing where it's like, it's, it gets really fun after you've been doing it for a little while. But the, if when, when you do a festival and you get just sort of dropped in and you have to get used to doing, a, used to playing live, half that time you're like, figuring it out and figuring out like can i what do i what am i hearing where is everybody where you know like learning where you are and then it's over like i just did this festival the the desert days and luckily the sound was so good the band was so so good that i was playing with the crowd was very nice that like about three so two or three songs in i was comfortable and then i just had fun but i've done those festivals where you're just like 
just, it's not fun. And it's like, oh man, I wish I could do this. I wish I could have this experience and then do a show tomorrow night where it settles in and becomes actually fun. Yeah. Well, cause you, there's also so much pressure on you guys because like you're basically dropping in at a headline level as yeah. like this group that's doing it for kind of the first time. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's a high wire act for sure. Uh, you also brought up, uh, you know, that Doors performance. Were you into like tape trading culture and all those kind of like weird lost and found clip tapes in the nineties? Yeah, there, yeah, I was because there, there was a guy in Philly. Uh, I think his name was Cotton Candy. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Maybe no. some, maybe um, someone listening probably. Yeah, he was, I was just thinking about him the other day and it, it was, uh, he was a, he was a, a bootlegger of tapes you know he went to every show and filmed the shows but he also had this collection of odd tapes that were pre-viral video you know we didn't really have the internet we had uh we had cotton candy and he would be like mm -hmm. dude you got to see this shit this is like well, you want to see james brown or you want to see chuck berry you know pissing on this <laughs> girl you know that tape is all yes, that, that stuff tape. and yeah you know all there's so much more there was this band called rock bitch do you know about this band rock bitch that they no, i don't I eric so. they were maybe german or there was european of some there was this all female like heavy metal punk style group but they had um they were very like pretty much naked or full in like s m kind of like leather you know like and they would have an a, a, I apologize for anybody that's that this is a trigger warning or whatever, but they would have guys in the front row with dildos on their like helmets with dildos on the, on their heads. <laughs> and they would, the, the rock bitch women, um, who it was, you know, it was very, it was very sex positive, female positive. Like they were in charge of whether yeah. or not they were going to like engage with the dildos, but but there was like a fairly professionally filmed concert of them uh that we had access to and watched quite a bit of yeah. uh, mo mostly out of just like stunned amusement not out of any kind of like you know sexual enjoyment uh it was just like what the f these these ladies are nuts this is cr i can't believe this is happening but hey, well, um oh, yeah, no, sorry, so go on. oh i was gonna i'm just saying like it's it's amazing how you said pre-viral videos how these things got around and how like yeah. apocalypse poo or the you know the chuck berry tape or the yeah. one where uh the woman sends the 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 video to steve Vai and she's like queefing guitar solos oh yeah yeah you yeah. know how these things kind of get spread at that point mm -hmm. like you know and it's just like it's there's that mr show sketch you got to see this and, and right. watching that as a kid being like oh my god this is like a universal experience like everyone's kind of having it shown to them this way well, the Mr. Sh you know, speak Mr. Show is one of those tapes actually, and and it was on HBO, but it had come and gone. I think by the time we found it, but this guy, I think Cotton Candy and a few other people were like, "You got to see this show, man. This uh, we have it all on tape. You know, we, yeah. we taped them all." And my friend Chris, who was I, I knew a little bit later when I moved to New York in like two thousand two thousand one, he had just come from England and had brought back all these tapes of British comedy. And that was a mind blower. That was like um, Chris Morris, his show Jam and uh, The Day Today and some Alan Partridge and Brass all this Eye British. Probably. Brass Eye, yeah. yeah. 
and all that stuff he had just this he's like whoa wait where do you see all this shit this you'll you know and again pre youtube pre uh streaming stuff it was just that was the only way you were ever going to see that stuff well it's funny because that, that stuff obviously the stuff you guys do is completely different but if there's something that's almost like anti-comedy in the same way where you'll be watching something and it'll yeah. be funny and then all of a sudden it just switches tone yeah and and it's almost like that shocking moment that kind of hits with you um, now i do have to interrupt you and, and go on the record because i understand it's a term but i am here to i i tr whenever i have the opportunity to i say anti-comedy is not a thing okay <laughs> 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 it is a thing that i guess gets used occasionally in journalism or whatever but anybody that's labeled that i know all these people and we all go i don't know what they're talking about because all we're trying to do is make you is make you laugh and so that sounds like comedy to me <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah. i get what it means i mean believe me i get what it means but i always think like well it's just our kind of com it's just the shit that makes us laugh and you know, if I would call, uh, you know, the Big Bang Theory anti-comedy because it doesn't seem to have any interest in making me laugh, you know. But uh, so I, I get a little um, that's my goal in life is to like eradicate that word from the from the lexicon. I will I will strip it from my lexicon. But I think it's it's definitely something where it feels like the intent of what something populist like that is doing. And ultimately what you're doing is populist, too. Obviously, mm -hmm. a very successful career. But the intention of the stuff like Kids in the Hall yeah. or or uh you know certainly you know mr show and, and chris morris and even some of the early alan partridge stuff where it's less trying to make you laugh and it's like if yeah. you don't laugh it's that's fine you don't have to laugh like we don't care yeah it's also i think those those shows and, and uh our stuff and stuff that might get called anti-comedy it comes with the understanding or it comes with like an arrangement that for you to really enjoy this, you have to have a, a bit of uh, context about comedy and what's supposed to be funny. And it's sort of a counterpoint to something that, you know, you, you have to come with a, it's not just a guy falling down. It's a joke about like the guy falls down and the expectations are he, that, that he gets back up. But in that case, he's dead, you know? And so yeah. like, it, it's that, it, but you have to know that so you have to kind of already know that like the joke about a guy falling down has been told for a hundred years and that th there's a reference. Does that make sense? It's sort yeah, of like, no, definitely. You know, we come with a, with a reference to understanding comedy or storytelling or, you know, narrative form. And like there's, there, but there's also something in the nineties where, it was laughing at stuff that you're not supposed to laugh at mm -hmm. and this stuff's not supposed to be fun like faces of death you know i'm not saying like pretty right. fucked up that people laughed at it but like that was the intention when you put that on at a party yeah or you know tom green yeah for sure yeah. was sort of just like well this is just stupid that was that would have been the attitude well yeah that's the point it's just stupid or you know he's being aggressively annoying and and you know there's also like common there's like a route to that that's very basic i think you know but um certainly like that again it comes from like tom green probably knowing the rules of all those old traditional traditional prank things and subverting them because he knows that the audience is knows those rules too mm -hmm. um but yeah I, there's definitely a period of i mean that's it's just the 90s gets to the place where you have a couple generations of people that were raised on television raised on 
media uh, and have just a very high, uh, you know, aptitude for understanding what what a show, what media is, you know? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what punk does with music, you know, in the same yeah. way that it's like, we understand the rules, like it's the, the mannerist stage of genre development, where it's like, now we're going to play with everything. And yeah, we know what good rock and roll is, but we're going to play it like we want to play it instead. Right. Um, did, were you into any of the Derek Beckles stuff? Did you see any of TV cards? Oh yeah, yeah, right, yeah, totally. Right around that time, I think when when uh, the Brass Eye and all that stuff was was coming into our lives, uh, those uh, f- those Vice DVDs came out. Uh, They're called Fri- Fridays. What were they called? Uh, Something about pants, maybe or no? Fri- I, I'm blanking on them, but they were hugely influenced. I mean. Uh, yeah, Derek, but what were they called? I should know. We used to have, I, I worked at a video store and we got the tapes. They would bring in tapes for us in Toronto. When Oh, really? And I think they, the DVDs are the compilation of like yeah. the tapes. That, well, that, because that started up in, in Canada, right? Yeah, they were Toronto yeah. guys. And they used to actually, the yeah. video store I worked at, that's where they would come in and it was like a video store very much like Kim's where you just mm. had so much fucked up stuff. Like, right. And they would get a lot of the early TV stuff. Were, carnage TV Carnage. TV Carnage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. absolutely, sorry um yeah we that that was i mean i've talked about it many times i th- i hope that i have that we would we picked up a lot i mean there was just a lot of great m- editing moves and style moves and uh, i mean we we grew up with the stuff that they were pulling from too you mm-hmm. know we were we grew up i grew up in allentown and and we had our local uh, you know people always say is this cable access i, say, I never knew what cable access was i knew i knew what local broadcast you know local television was which is worse you know because they yeah. have more resources it's not just it's not just a you know between two ferns with a blue background it's it's you know it's a three camera shoot and it's it's uh furniture commercials and it's televangelists and it's polka night you know it's it's there's a lot a lot it's a dynamic experience those sh- that that local tv absolutely no and it's it's definitely uh you know, something that's kind of like people are too self-aware now in a way that actually that's not true. You look on YouTube, people still make that kind of content, but I guess it's like, no one's going to sink that much money into that kind of content anymore. Right. Like that yeah. was, I guess the moment where they still had budget to produce sets and have makeup people to look too made up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now there, I mean, there must, I think there must still be local television markets out there. I mean, that, that uh, are just, soldiering along and making making local stuff for people and uh but but now you're right like there's so much uh you know even in in small town america i feel like it has moved to social media where you find out about st- where the advertising goes where the where the news goes and stuff and where this where the sense of community has gone so i don't know i don't know if those stations are flourishing the way they might have in the 80s and 90s it's interesting to kind of look at the shift that's happened where it's not just the death of death of physical media and records and stuff like that. Like obviously records still sell, but I mean like on mass, but it's also like the death of traditional platforms. Like, like what you do, you don't necessarily need these networks. Like they come to you and, and yeah. it's not, and it's, it's, it's different now, right? Like you said, the tools are more accessible. Like it's easier to do this stuff. Yeah. It's still nice there's still something very nice about getting paid too much money to do the things we do. You know, I've always felt that we were getting paid too much. Um, But 
And then uh, there is a part of my life where I do get paid too much to do other people's stuff. If it's acting in somebody's thing or directing a commercial or something uh, there, still at a place for me, at least where it's very, it's like with any small business, it's hard to, you know, um, to bring in, to, to have the revenues meet the costs, you know, as they say, like, it's still always like, you know, you're on a razor's edge trying to make the, the independent stuff work uh, in the, in the big corporate world of Warner brothers and all NBC and stuff. There's just this kind of, there's, a, there's always, you know, pushback on budgets and that kind of thing, but there is this other level of, of money involved that makes things like, you know, uh, seem like anything's kind of possible, but I mean, I, we just, uh, but it, the trade-off is, you know, it, it's, we get uh, with, you know, the high network, which is where on cinema lives. Now we just do whatever we want, you know, and, and we've always done whatever we want. Like, but, um, uh, you, you, that's, you, you have to, uh, um, you, you can't be, you can't expect to, to make a bunch of money doing whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess going back, I had a friend and she went down and hung out in Philly back in the nineties and hung out with the ink and dagger guys and maybe Mm -hmm. stayed at your house for a while too. And was like, those guys are the craziest fucking dudes I've ever met in my life. They showed me this crazy prank tape that they had made where they shat in their pants beside someone at a library. Uh, would this have been something you guys would have made back then? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I, well, I wasn't really in the, um, <laughs> I, I wasn't really in the ink and dagger scene at all. Yeah. Thankfully yeah. that seemed that that was definitely, I, that sounds like those guys. I mean, Eric was, I think he was in that band for a little chunk of time. I don't think he was like, he, he was like a bass. He was like a sub bass player, like a substitute bass player. Um, yeah, I stayed clear of those. I was, uh, I was, I was a little bit of a, I don't know. You know, I was not, I was not into that scene, I guess. Was it, there was someone else from 1210 system in it too, or maybe I'm mistaken on that. No, I don't, that, uh, that I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's that Safira band that someone from some of those guys did. I think anyway, it's a discussion. How did 1210 system come together? Um, Well, I think it's out of, um, it's a good question. I, I was, living with eric and and he had a bunch a couple different bands going on i think a band called i am heaven mm-hmm. was a, a band and a couple other bands that were you know in that emo scene and uh element of need i think Element's that sounds need. right that sounds right he had a label too i think right yuletide maybe i don't know okay i don't remember but uh it was yeah there was they were Eric and this guy, John Ziemba and this other guy, Brandon, I think were, were uh, kind of moving, I guess, advancing out of sort of the emo. Uh, I, mean, I don't know about that, but they were exploring other kinds of music and, you know, stereo lab would be one band and sort of keyboard, goth keyboard, uh, synth, uh, synth kind of uh, uh, focused band not just guitar based so they got really into the i think they bought a couple of moogs or sort of moog style analog synths and started getting really cool sounds out of them you know like really interesting um kind of noisy 
but also sort of song based, you know, um, music. And so they, uh, I think that's kind of it. I think they played for a while. I was in it for like a minute. I was asked to go on tour to play keyboards because I could play music and it was more of a uh, fun winter winter break from college little adventure go on tour with the band kind of thing i have a terrible memory of that tour though i was in i I was you know i was playing one of the modular uh analog synths in the band that was my job and i think maybe a little tambourine or something when there wasn't (laughs) like uh, a little backing but it wasn't my band you know i was just there to hang but um we were playing somewhere i think in north carolina i think we're playing in chapel hill and uh i it was new year's eve it was a new year's eve show house house party and we were setting up the setting up to play in the living room and i put the keyboard on the uh keyboard stand and it went it's it just dropped like a pancake just like slam i did not you know it was that thing with a keyboard stand where i didn't have it notched in the right way so it was just a it was a free fall and that keyboard did not turn back on um, when we plugged it in and it was like the world had ended because these were like, um, you know, no one had any money and these were not cheap machines. These were vintage uh, machines. Luckily the, ha- the good news is it did get fixed. They fixed, they went to a place that could fix it. Um, but that night I just felt like just awful. And it happened today, actually. I was shooting. We're, I went to go see somebody. We were shooting this thing, and I was there to sort of check in with them and see how it was going, this thing that we're producing. And it was a little bit of a low, low, low budget kind of thing. So it was just a couple of those DSLR cameras that was, you know, um, and it was just not a very well-run set. You know, it was just kind of bare bones, you know, no monitors and that kind of thing. I shouldn't say it was not well-run, but. And I wanted to see what the shot was. So I walked over to where the cameras were and it was real dark. And, and uh, I looked at it, I said, okay, cool. And as I walked off, my foot tripped and uh, on a wire, which was the AC uh, power of the plug into the camera. Yeah. And it just ripped off the, like it, it was, did that thing where it just tore off leaving the, like the pins from the, from the adapter in the camera, you know, like just broke. And it was, it, I, I didn't feel bad. Cause I felt sort of like you guys should have done a better job of like cleaning Taking up the cables, down. you yeah. know, like I can't, I should be able to walk around in this, but, uh, and they figured it out, but they had to, you know, they were just like, fuck. Cause we can't, we have to like change this battery every two minutes. And it was just a mess. So I, I, I step in it every once in a while gear it'll always screw you over yeah you can't prepare for that and stuff it, it's, you have to be ready to just do do some shit without gear that's for sure what kind of bands were you guys playing with because i think maybe four years later your sound would have fit in with all that stuff that was kind of popping off in the early 2000s but you're yeah. a little ahead of the trend in 96 that's probably true i don't remember any of the other bands offhand um yeah i don't know what would have been around but uh that eric and then a few of those guys then did sort of another group after that called sola maybe mm-hmm. it was it was like i can't remember it was a very like um 
sort of jazz driven kind of thing like a tortoise or something you know yeah um yeah. but cool as hell like and i remember I was thinking about this the other day that i thought that was probably the best that was the best thing to come out of the philly scene in my opinion because it was just it felt it felt grown up it felt like this is this could go play like this is very cool very jammy which isn't always my favorite thing like like they very like groove oriented instrumental and i was like this has legs like this could go far uh and it was right as eric and i were like kind of making our first push to do comedy and i was in the back of my head i was thinking i wonder if he just might want to take this other route you know which is this band yeah um but they they fizzled or or you know eric decided to whatever he decided what led to where we are now but um yeah that it meant him leaving philly basically and breaking up that band i think it's amazing how many people in comedy kind of hit that point where they're involved in in normally punk bands i've found probably yeah. I do a punk podcast but mm -hmm. where they decide comedy is where they're going to go and i you know the bands or whatever happens to them afterwards well i think my theory on that is uh most a lot of uh people that want to do something creative when they're kids they want to you know they see some they see you know the the tonight show and they want to be uh, in comedy or they they see they want to do cartoon voices or they they do something in the school play and they find that they like the sound of applause or they can't shut their mouths up because they've got add and they're just you know hyper which is probably my case when i was a kid um the first thing you can really do is a band. Like the first thing that gets anything going is like you could get, there's always going to be some people in the neighborhood that's, that's got, that has a basement that, that, that once that also has that same feeling of like, I want to, I can't make a movie right now. I can't go out and do stand up right now. Cause I'm 13 years old and I don't really have anything to say. Um, but I can like bash away on a guitar and I could go down to the local mu music shop and get like the starter kit and the gorilla amp, you know, and uh, like these are all very tangible, like small step things. And I think a lot of comedians, a lot of actors um, probably went through that period where they, you know, had a, ba a basement band or a garage band uh, and then got to a point where they could, they chose to do something, something else when they're, you know, in a, in the in the whether it's going to film school or acting school or starting to think outside of just uh, music but i think i think then you also find that there are musicians who want to be in comedy or they want to be in movies or you know they or some of our biggest fans were always guys that were in bands were in punk bands and you know the built to spill guys for example were like major early fans of ours and i used to love those guys in high school and i just couldn't believe it and i was like dude you know perfect from now on is one of my favorite records and you guys are liking what i do is it was that was just mind-blowing but i think it was that shared like we all kind of grew up with a creative energy that uh you know a lot of people started bands and the and the people that started bands that stayed playing bands still have different you know, itches that need to be scratched creatively, want to do other things. Yeah, it's very, and like, especially this generation of comedy 
and this generation kind of like indie mm-hmm. punk adjacent kind of music where like you're saying it earlier it's like about subverting the genre it's people that can kind of see through the tropes of this thing and well that's retain. funny because yeah the, you say that the, the, i think it's important to remember that when we were coming up there we comedy wasn't a thing that we imagined possible because comedy was not a cool thing it was not a it's not a thing that we aspired towards because because of what we you know thought of what 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 comedy was it, you know comedy was seinfeld and which i actually like a lot but it was it was mainstream it was um not subversive you know it was not subversive it was not dangerous it was not um you know interesting artistically it was just sort of uh for mass consumption now we were fans of certain things we were fans of andy kaufman and fans of um mr show and that those like seeing mr show was kind of like actually this does remind me a little bit of like pavement or you know, it reminds me a little bit of like a Matador band, what, 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 uh, you know, Mr. Show is doing. Yeah. So that made us think a little bit more like, well, this stuff that we're doing, which is kind of, we thought about it and this is very pretentious, but we thought it, we thought about it more as like art, you know, like, because that was like in Philadelphia, that's what like people were doing art, you know, and like people were putting on shows, galleries and, um doing weird you know performance art and and very strange things um and we were making videos and they were they were funny but they were also like subversive and weird and in our minds artistic you know so so it was it was confusing to us to think of ourselves as comedy even though we knew that what we were doing was funny where do you think it was going to fit in then? Like, because it's, it's it, what you're doing is I haven't seen like the early, early stuff, but it's more yeah. playful than like cinema of transgression. Like it is, yeah. it's, you know, like, was there other stuff that you thought like, okay, this is where this thing could potentially fit in. With? That's, uh, you know, I've really no clear idea. I think really we, there was comedy central, which we did go and meet with and they were uh, nice, but said yeah this you guys are this isn't for us um and then there was adult swim and that 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 felt a little more like in it would be really the only place that would feel appropriate for what we were doing and there they were and they were looking for for people like us so it worked out like were you into because like i think for us in canada growing up like the first place like you mentioned with mr show and obviously the matador stuff like those guys hosting the video for matador later on and all that yeah for us, it was like kids in the hall and shadowy men on a shadowy planet doing the theme song mm-hmm. and that kind of like marriage of like, I don't know, cool. Music, cool. Yeah. Cool comedy and stuff like that. Were you like in SCTV or, or yeah. and that sort of oh, stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I loved, um, SCTV was on here on a network called Nick at night, which mm-hmm. is Nickelodeon. It was basically if now that I think about it, it was basically what adult swim was, except they just had old programming, but it was basically Nickelodeon was for kids and at night it was Nick at night and they showed old sitcoms and game shows and uh, SCTV and SCTV was for one summer I can remember at least like I watched that every night absolutely uh, you know love there's what's not to love about all those people 
And then Kids in the Hall right around the same time was huge. I mean, I just felt that that was absolutely for me and uh, was way darker and more subversive and interesting and cooler. Totally cool. Totally cool. Not, and, and, you know, there were things that were cooler, which and more dangerous that it was the right. It was the sweet spot of cool for me. It was a nerdy cool. It was like they might be giants or something. Yeah. Which like, I love too, you know, yeah. I, lo- I loved and I, I will go back to listen to that every once in a while and be like that album flood is really fucking good. It's really fucking smart and cool as hell. And so unique sounding and totally nerdy. Um, but that, but that goes back to what I was saying earlier, like melody and like pop hooks that's where you could get me on board with your music. I've, I've heard you talk about Howard Stern and mm-hmm. sort of the influence. And that's like a culture that I don't think I grew up with because we didn't have him on radio till much, much later. Um, have you ever heard his weird parody record that he did? How Weird Stern? <laughs> that Howard Stern did? Yeah. In like 78? No, like a, I don't think I ever did. It's, it's like, a, like a novelty record. Yeah. He's like trying to go for like the blue version of Weird Al. Oh, weird. And I it, never heard it. I'll have okay. to look that up. It's, uh, yeah, I think he, he picked the right career path. I don't think he was on the same trajectory <laughs> as everyone else was. He was right on, he was right on the heels of, of knowing who, uh, or knowing who Weird Al was though. I mean, yeah, like, cause that's, that's pretty early for, for Al. It must, maybe it's a little bit later. Cause it must've been after Dr. Demento. I guess yeah. that Weird Al had a hit and it's like a cash in on that kind of vibe. That's funny that that Dr. Demento had a very big influence, I think on a lot of people, it, yeah. not so much me. I didn't, I don't think I knew, I think I knew about it when I was a kid. I don't know if it was ever on anywhere, but certainly you hear about a lot of people as how they heard a lot of weird things for the first time. Yeah. I think you're like a generation after, cause I think you and me are kind of the same age. And, yeah. But I think for the generation before, like, yeah, like it was when you're grasping for anything outside of this mainstream, that's one of the few places that's actually giving it to you. Yeah, it's it's interesting now that there is so much and everyone's exposed to everything and you could get anything you want. But what you don't have as much anymore, and tell me if I'm wrong, is the kind of curation that we had by certain very cool people that could go like, here's what you need to know. Like, here's the cool stuff. Here's the good stuff. Here's the weird stuff. I'm going to turn you on to things that you've never heard before. I mean, college radio was like the, I had a college radio station, WFMU, not well, WFMU, but um, I can't remember. It was Muhlenberg's station here in Allentown, but you know, it's hard. I don't know where to, I don't know where, where to find like the good shit now, but. Well, it's changed, right? Like it's all dispersed, right? Well, I think what's cool has changed. Like I think vice and that vice culture was the tipping point. And now like I look at the stuff that my kids look at on the internet and the people they look up to and they're not cool by any metric. Like they're just like normal people. Right. They're they're not Gerard Kosloy or Matador records people or the vice people, you know, they're like really, they're a lot. They're people that want you to like them, which is not what we were ever into. We were never into anybody, you know, even something like Michael Stipe, you look at early Michael Stipe, he didn't want to be on camera yeah you know he was like looking he was turning away and you're just like that was kind of cool obviously that was cool well like, the whole 
Well, yeah, the whole point was to become famous and hate it. Yeah. You know, like all those rock stars just were like, fuck, why did I do this? And like, that was, and I think that must be a punk thing, right? Kurt Cobain, Michael Stipe, like all these yeah. guys were coming out of punk bands. So it's like this punk rock guilt, I guess, for some reason you're carrying around. Which is kind of silly, you know, like it is a silly part of that culture. It's yeah. sort of like, well, what, well, if you don't want to do this, don't do it. Like, yeah. what do you, what are you putting me through this for? I fucked my life up with it. There are definitely <laughs> decisions that I made with Ian McKay sitting on my so shoulder that in retrospect, now that I'm a father of three, it's like, yeah. why did I listen to this guy who's a millionaire, you know? Right. Off yeah. There, there definitely was a letting go of sort of the, I mean, we came out of that punk spirit and punk, uh, like fuck everything and not, uh, and, and burn bridges kind of attitude. And, uh, you just like, a, and also staying in character and not, not revealing anything about yourself and that was like the first 10 years of our career and then you know you first of all life happens you got to make money you got to do things you don't want to do i mean that goes for everybody that's not just arts that's life you know mm -hmm. it's like i gotta unless you're david bowie and i'm sure david bowie did shit he didn't want to do but you know there's just a, an obligation to all right well i've chosen to be a to work in this business and i'm going to want to sustain myself and my and have a comfortable life and raise a family and do all these things i'm gonna to have to do shit that that is doesn't live up to my punk credo from when i was 18 and the other thing is like uh you know you, you don't have to if i always say like if andy kaufman hadn't died he would have dropped his shtick yeah. you know what i mean it would have been <laughs> like it would have been like Hey, Andy Kaufman's doing a new uh, show where he's just himself. And uh, it's pretty cool because he's actually an interesting guy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It just feels like you, that's such a youthful thing to do. And there's I guess there are probably people that have maintained that for years and years. But I eventually just said, like, well, I'll do comedy and I'll still do my the things that I like to do. But I'm not going to be precious about who I am to for example, right now, you know, like I'm not going to, my life isn't going to be a art project. Yeah. Well, like eventually kiss took off the makeup, you know, like yeah. you have to at some point, but I don't know, like, it's funny. Cause the only thing where you can kind of just constantly be the character for the rest of your life is wrestling. And you look at pro wrestlers uh -huh. and there's some of yeah. them that, you know, and Andy Kaufman, obviously being a huge fan. Right. I wonder if he just would have gone so far in and just never been able to drop it. Like, like yeah, I said, he probably would have, but I don't know. It's interesting. Um, I think you would have taken an acting gig and it would have been like, yeah, it would have, it would have, who knows? Because it also like limit, it creates so many borders for what you can do creatively. Mm. If you, if you've boxed yourself into a character. So. Well, like Neil Hamburger was a great, yeah. I remember being on a cruise. We did a cruise with him and he was Greg and I was, yeah. I couldn't go up and talk to him. I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk to him. I want to talk yeah. to him about Faxhead. I want to talk to him about all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was just, I couldn't because I didn't know if that wall is able to be breached, you know? And it's... Well, uh, the one of the greatest achievements for me, well, first of all, you know, I get to work with Greg on, on cinema. And that's, uh, that was always, a, that was a big deal when he said like, well, I'll just be Greg Turkington on the show, but it's obviously not Greg Turkington either. You yeah. know, it's, and I'm not Tim Heidecker, but I'm Tim Heidecker on that show that's that was a big mistake maybe because if we just would have been two characters you know just change our names it would have been way less confusing but but he was like okay that's the one time i'm just going to be myself 
and, or not be myself, but use my name. And then last year on office hours, we started doing sort of uh, game nights at, you know, like a live streaming podcast thing. And um, we got pretty good at it and it's really fun. We have a couple of drinks and we have a lot of zoomers call in and stuff. And I, and I asked Greg and Simone, his wife, could you, would you do the show and come in and come with a game? Cause he had this idea for a game because he collects records, you know, he collects like um, novelty records and, one-off pressing kind of things and so he's got this incredible hilarious collection of these insane records and the game was he would show three covers and play the, one of the records and you have to guess which record it was and it was it's a it's a great game because the covers are you know it's all these like people that used to play at the holiday inn and it's their like guy you know guys in velour suits and big giant afro you know all kinds of just that feels like it's from another planet yeah but I got, we got just Greg as Greg, you know, to hang on camera and talk. And he's just a funny guy. You yeah. know, he's just a funny, fun person to be around. And I'm like, dude, th there's a whole world for you of just being funny and being yourself. But please don't give up Neil Hamburger because it's the greatest thing. But you can do all kinds of things uh, in this world nowadays. Well, like, I think people, you're, people are happy. They're like, holy shit, this, this is more of more good stuff, you know? And you're a perfect example of that. Like you do earnest music, you do yeah. comedy music, you do comedy, you do commercial work, you do acting yeah. work. Like you do, you, you know, like you do, it's really inspiring because you don't have and to. Why should yourself. you ever think that I shouldn't do that? Like, and it, obviously it annoys me. People go like, you know, stick to comedy or whatever. It's like, why? Like I can only, I just, I just have to do what I want to do. Now, some things can just work better than other things, of course. And, you know, I'm not going to nail it all the time, but I can't go like, I shouldn't do that. Cause that's not, that's not good for my brand or, you know, like that's not who I, that's not what I'm about. Well, it is what I'm about. Cause it's what I want to do. How do you manage the time though? Like, that's the thing I find also, cause I'm a, I'm a parent as well. Yeah. And just like the amount of output you put out and the amount of like sort of disparate output that you put out. So like just mindset juggling must be intense at times. Well, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, it, the perception isn't exactly the reality because, you know, you do, you, you do things, they happen and they come out much later because of the way things work. You know, you, I, I went and made an album and it took me, you know, these kind of things take three weeks, two weeks of real dedicated time. And then it's like, you know, oh, I'm going to schedule an hour to do overdubs and I'm going to schedule an hour to do whatever, uh, you know, fix this one thing. And it's really just comes down to like time management and schedule and putting stuff in your calendar and being like, all right, this week, it's frustrating because some things will, I'll have like a show booked for, you know, because again, because of how this, the music business works is you have, you've got to book shit months and months and months in advance, right? Like, yeah, just what am I doing in six months? I don't know. I might get a call from fucking Steven Spielberg to be in his movie. Yeah. You know, like I might, you know, I, this not crazy, but I can't, I can't stop doing the other stuff. So yeah, the, the, the acting stuff or the part, the big, bigger money things, they might come up like the other day. I, it was like, 
uh, can you be in New Orleans next week for this TV show? I'm like, well, I got to move some shit around, but I guess I got to, you know, I can't just, yeah. You, so you just got, and luckily my wife is amazing and she uh, knows that this is our life and she knows like, you know, she's got her own things going on, but it's like, I can't turn work down because it means I'm going to have to go out of town, you know, like there's those kind of things where it's like, all right, well, I'm going to New Orleans for a, a week and, uh, you know, we'll figure it out, but it, it's worked out, but it, there are days where you're just like, all right. I'm going to be working on this in the morning and that in the afternoon. And then at night I'll check in on this, but it's really not, I can't complain. It, it a lot of it is sitting around waiting and uh, you know, letting and other people doing some of the time, you know, we have amazing editors, amazing mixers, those kind of people that are just like, sometimes that's where all the time goes, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. like writing a song. It takes me, about as long as the song takes, you know, to sing sometimes if you're lucky, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe um, twice. This has been uh, a huge thrill and I appreciate you giving me this time. And anytime you want to come back and talk about any of this stuff, you know, the door is always open. Um, I appreciate it. But before I let you go, can I ask you quickly, cause you're, you're, you're someone who's confronted, you know, trolls kind of head on. And I know mm-hmm. people always make a, a big, you know, like talk about this a lot and it's an important thing to do, obviously, but I think at the same time, it's interesting because I think you have a really great sense about where this stuff comes from. And I Mm. think that's, I think find fascinating because a lot of people look at the problem, but don't necessarily identify where the source is sometimes. And I think with this stuff, troll culture and seeing where that came from and where it's ultimately led with like QAnon and proud boys and all this stuff that comes out of troll culture. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see how this thing has arisen. And it's like the problem of our era. I agree. Um, I don't know if, if you, how, how to approach that uh, to, to be, to be helpful. It's very, uh, yeah, I, I think it does. I, it comes out of a, um, you know, the, I think it does come out of a kind of a nihilistic punk culture that uh, we're definitely a part of. And I'm a part of, was a part of, um, I'm sure a lot of the people that shit posted troll come out of watching our stuff or maybe not entirely, but certainly that was what they were into. And when, when they find out that I'm not really about that so much, I think it's disappointing to them because our shows, a lot of our humor and a lot of my humor still, I think talks about, uh, it has a sort of a nihilistic uh, nothing matters kind of uh, attitude. And um, I think I've balanced, I fight that a little bit and I try to not make that everything I'm about, but um, you know, the, the internet has created a place where I think especially young boys find empowerment in uh, having control over, you know, being, being able to sit almost like a video game where you would just sort of be, be able to fire missiles onto villages without any repercussions or any um, consequences. And there's something I, I could easily remember being 16 when the internet just first happened and realized I could go into a chat room and fuck with people. It was great. Yeah. It was awesome. It was, it was not awesome. It was fun and dangerous. And it was the same as prank phone calls. You know, it was the same energy. 
And uh, I think that's largely what it is that is going on when people are, but it's become an ideology and it's, and it's gotten wrapped up in, I think the danger, the scary thing is that it's gotten wrapped up in politics. It's being used as a tool to, you know, disenfranchise and hurt people, you know? So uh, I don't really know how to, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I don't really, I think taking certain people off those platforms has been helpful. I think it's, it's, and making people, feel like that there is accountability and i'm not a censorship guy but these and these companies are are, are is, is a nightmare scenario with a lot of them but they they do have to regulate what goes on on these sites you know i think that that's fair game for them to do so um you know it's all it's like you, there's a line in this movie that uh, that came out about the Q that into the storm the documentary amazing. that came out amazing, amazing. yeah and it really a great line from that was the guy that started 4chan the guy that's in the wheelchair can't remember his Jer- uh, can't remember Jer- his name Jeremiah is it Jeremy no. or something yeah uh, he said I realized that there is no difference between what's on the internet and what's in real life that is life like life is on the internet like so you have to treat people like you know you're talking to them in person as much as you can it's it that's what you should strive towards it's not always easy it's so easy to be a a piece of shit online because there are no consequences to it but i'm it 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 fascinates me and it it makes me sometimes i do reach out to people i say hey um i would like to talk to you because i want to talk to you and on the phone you know i wish twitter had a button that just said call me you know and, oh i'm glad it doesn't but well but you know it, it would be a thing where you didn't have to engage okay, but okay, you didn't yeah. have to get the you didn't have you didn't have to then know the person's number you know like yeah like an instagram like, live thing almost yeah just like yeah. hey are you serious like yeah. are you really mad like, and that person nine out of times nine out of ten times is going to say no man i'm fucking around i thought you thought i was like a lot of people think that i think it's funny and I go, sometimes it is, but most people aren't that funny. You know what I mean? <laughs> most people aren't that, aren't that clever. So anyways. Yeah. And I, I hope I, I, my, my hope is that like a lot of the people grow out of it, get bored, get jobs, I, you know, uh, and just get too busy to be online like that and, and get consumed by it. But a new generation comes to take their place, I guess. I do think there's this little quickly, there's this like theory I have that that millennial generation, you know, I always think this doesn't really get thought about, talked about as much. And maybe it came up a little bit this year because it was the 20th anniversary. But for the millennial and Gen Gen Z, their first, the first like, you know, that first thing in in the world that like, that you notice is outside your little family unit. For them, it was 9-11, which is so apocalyptically awful and has all. And then it led to another 10 years of just war on terror and the war in Iraq. And, you know, it's been a tough 20 years. And I think when you grow up in that, um, you know, you have a a pretty nihilistic and pretty depressed uh, perception of the of, you know, and it's hard to really care it's hard to really get behind anything uh and i think that's like you know a a little bit of a like that's the original sin of the past 20 years for for a lot of people growing up so 
Yeah, there's like such a cynicism, such a yeah, cynicism. Right. Yeah, like the and also it's amazing kind of looking at that time and looking at what the barometer of cool was, where it's vice and do's and don'ts, and obviously, yeah, vice is very different now. But Gavin at that time, yeah, and where he would go, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's also you like, can't, can't. I mean, I mean, like there was no cause, there was no movement, there was there was no. uh you know, the, there's a bit of a shift now. I feel like there's activism that's come back, you know, from, but, you know, the 60s had all kinds of things that you could care about legitimately and do stuff about, work work towards. And I think in the 90s, it sort of started, but it really got cemented in. You know, when we're growing up, there's no real thing. There's nothing to real, there's that sort of malaise and that sort of, you know, it's you, to, to be cool. You can't really care. You can't yeah. talk about shit and you have to be kind of uh, sarcastic and ironic. Uh, and, 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 and mean. that and it was mean. Like, it was the height of mean where being yeah. mean was funny. Being mean was cool. Like in music, being mean was the best thing. Like you look at the bands that are popular now, like you're saying, it's a lot more, it's people that want to entertain you. People that want to be positive about their situation. Yeah. Or the, this situation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, um, uh, anytime. Anyways. Anyway. Thank you, man. Dude, it was a really fun a- chat. Oh, this has been awesome. Thank you so cool. much. Take care. Thank you, Tim, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Tim will be back at some point in the future for more conversation. Uh, and check out On Cinema. Check out Office Hours. You know, the guy is hilarious. It, I'm saying check this stuff out to enrich your life. You know, it's not a chore. It's not a chore. Speaking of things that aren't a chore, coming up in a few short days on this podcast, a guy who I've been wanting to have on this thing for a long time. A lot of you probably know him from the band Section 8. They, of course, had an infamous live video. That was one of the first sort of big outdoor shows post-pandemic thaw for a second. Uh, Incredible Incredible band, but it, for a lot of us also know him back in the day from the band Spittin' Teeth. Mexi Mike will be on the show, uh, a.k.a. Vegan Mike, for the people that remember him back from his Spitting Teeth 7-inch days as well. Uh, check out the new Section 8 record, a fantastic record. Check out those old Spitting Teeth 7-inches, great records. I threw them on the other day ahead of that interview and still hold up for me. Uh, But that is it for this week. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. We need to stop uh, hate and violence towards uh, Asian people and people of different faiths and just put a stop to all that because that's not... That this is this is we're talking about stuff that isn't political. This stuff isn't political. This is just basic human rights stuff. Go there and make your own culture because anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a, a, a fanzine, start a podcast. Believe me, <laughs> this is some of the easiest shit. Uh, anyone can do it, and it'll make you feel better. And you don't have to put it out to the world. Just put it out to your friends. Let your friends, you know, see what you're working on. Be creative. It'll help your mental health. Speaking of helping your mental health, try meditating. I know I say this. I didn't believe in it, and it, I find it really does work. You know, it helps with sleep. It helps with relaxation. It just I don't know. It's like exercise for your brain. And I'm sure someone else has already made that analogy. So I don't want to pretend like that's something profound, but it is definitely something that I did not believe in. And I find I gain benefit when I remember to do it. So I'm saying this to myself to remind myself to do it too. Uh, you sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking at those organs, you don't need them. Just sign that shit. 
Why not? And I think that is it. Uh, go out there, uh, stay safe, and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.